0: 11, 1 through 12 13 but since ted read the first chapter chapter 11 earlier i simply for the reading of the god's word prior to the sermon i just want to read second corinthians 12 uh, 1 through 13 so the latter half of our text it's a, it's a large section starting in chapter 11 verse 1 and going through chapter 12 13 but i think the context of the whole is important and so we're going to look at it all this morning but this morning then again for the reading of god's word Page 970 of the Pew Bibles. If you're able, if you'll stand once more. Picking up where our reading earlier left off, Paul continues, chapter 12, verse 1 I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. I have been a fool, you forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. Signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works, for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you. Forgive me this wrong." Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, as it comes now to the preaching of your word, I too will note my own weaknesses. Lord, though Nathan even made reference to it earlier, 22 years of preaching most Sundays, it doesn't get easier. In fact, in some ways, it gets more difficult because I feel like my mind, Father, is weaker than it was at remembering. And this morning, what I desire, I know your people, some of them I know quite well the weaknesses and insults and hardships and calamities they've gone through. And they feel like they're treading water, and I so desperately the truth of this text to grip their hearts and deepen them in their trust in you and in their knowledge of your love for them. But I know that just left to myself, I'm incapable of that. So Father, we this morning also confess our weakness of hearing. Lord, it's easy to be distracted, to be tired, I'm all of those things. So we ask this morning, would you show your strength through our weakness? And allow us to walk out of this room saying, the Lord God met with us and ministered to us through his word powerfully so that we might know his love for us more and love him more. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Paul says something absolutely remarkable in our text this morning. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, Paul says this, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content... With weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And it may be, in fact, several commentators suggest this, it may be that when we translate the word content, when Paul says, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, that word may be a bit too weak. Paul uses that word in some other of his letters in context where it clearly means something like delight in, take pleasure in. Paul may well be saying in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, I take pleasure in, I find delight in my weaknesses, my hardships, my calamities, my persecutions, insults. And it's not because he's some kind of troubled person who just, loves pain and loves suffering. No, it's because he's realized something. A secret that, that, that's not a secret. A secret simply in the fact that it's just not well known. It's not, it's not well acknowledged. It's, it's not something that we naturally intuit. The secret that Paul had come to recognize is that it was in his weakness that there was something he found that was so appealing and so attractive, that if it only came through his weakness, then he could look at his weakness, he could look at his hardship, his insults, his calamities, and persecutions, and say, if that is the vehicle through which then I experience this reality that he has found so appealing and so attractive, he can say, then I am content in my weaknesses. Or maybe I delight in my weaknesses or take pleasure in my weaknesses. And my prayer for us this morning is not only that we would then understand what Paul means, what he's getting at, why he can say that, but my, my prayer is also that you and I might come to a point where our hearts actually resonate with that, where we say to Paul, I get it, what you're expressing I feel. Because it may well be that if we can get our hearts there, if by the Spirit of Christ our hearts can, can resonate with what Paul is saying in this text, then it may well be that we find this text to be holding the truth that helps us on those days when we feel like we can't even move forward another step. My prayer is that this text becomes dear to us in that sense. But before we get then to diving into that statement that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, we need to set the context. Now, I mentioned last week that it's only in these last few chapters of the book of 2 Corinthians that, that Paul begins to address his opponents head on, these individuals. In chapter 11, verse 5, he terms super apostles in a sarcastic way. We've mentioned for probably every week through this series, that, that they have attacked him. They say things like he's an unskilled speaker, that he's not that impressive in his life experience. He's prone to suffering. He's, he's obviously not worth paying for to have him come and speak to you. And Paul, obviously, throughout the letter, feels that these have been foolish attacks. He spent a letter saying why it is he, he speaks as he does, why it is he ministers as he does, why it is that he doesn't charge them. And yet he finds himself, by the end of this letter, in a place almost where you can feel his desperation heightening. The Corinthians, it seems, being told by Paul's opponents to dismiss Paul and being told by Paul to dismiss these opponents, they've not yet let go of their opponents. They still find their arguments appealing. And so Paul, in his deep frustration, It's as if he's saying, fine, if the only thing that will capture your attention is their boasting about how great they are, then fine. I'll go for a little boasting as well. But it's nothing that Paul wants. It's something that he feels is foolish, but it's something that he feels that he's being pressed into as if it's his last resort. When you look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, he he lays out what's in his heart here. He says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. That is, he's about to boast. He thinks it's foolish. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul says, I... I, I thought of myself toward you as if, as if taking you and presenting you as a pure bride to Jesus Christ. But now I feel like you're being led astray. You're being deceived. These individuals who are, who are luring you and wooing you away are threatening your very souls. So I will engage in whatever I have to engage in for the sake of your salvation. And if it means boasting, then I will boast, even if it is a little more foolish. And Paul is frustrated that he has to do that. We know that because by the time you get to the end of our text, look at chapter 12, verse 11. After going through all of this, Paul says in twelve eleven, I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. And so that's what our text does. Paul pulling out this, what it seems like, final weapon, if you will, and saying, fine, I'm going to boast, if that's what's necessary to get your attention. But what's very interesting is that as Paul boasts, starting out with boasting in the the same kind of way that his opponents might. He ends up turning it on its head and showing us that his boasting, what he boasts in, is nothing like what they might boast in because he knows a secret. The secret that we're going to see in chapter 12, verse 10. But before we get there, let me just walk through the text. And that's really all I want to do in chapter 11. I'll just give you two headings to walk through the text, and that'll bring us to the main point that I want us to see in the text. So just walking through the text, first we can label a heading, Paul shows his superiority to the super apostles. If you look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 15, this is what we see in these verses. Paul shows his superiority to the super apostles. I've mentioned Paul feels that they're being pulled away, being torn away from him and consequently from Christ as well. He says in verse 4 of chapter 11, If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. This is exactly what Paul says is going on. These people are preaching a different Jesus. They're preaching a different spirit. They're preaching a different gospel. And you think they're more impressive than I am, but I'm going to tell you, verse 5, Indeed, I consider I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles. And then what he does through the rest of this first section through verse 15 is he takes one by one the issues that they're attacking him on, the issues where they're saying that's where he is weak. So, for example, they would say of Paul, he is not an impressive speaker. He's not rhetorically gifted. So note what he says in verse 6. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Paul says, fine. They may say, I'm not an impressive speaker. I'll, I'll, I'll say that's true. I'm not rhetorical flash, rhetorically flashy. I, I'm not the kind of guy that, that everybody would get excited about and turn out to come here speak. But don't mistake the lack of skill I have in speaking for a lack of knowledge. Because you know what I have brought to you is true. It brought to them the gospel of Jesus Christ, and their lives had been changed by it. Second, he, he takes on the, the issue where they would say, you get what you pay for, right? Paul's not the kind of guy that comes in and demands $40,000 to hear him speak. In fact, he preaches for free, and they would say because that's what he's worth, nothing. So Paul takes on that issue in verse 7. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? Paul says, do you realize that that was not a wicked thing? In fact, The only reason I was able to do that is because other churches picked up the very burden that that you weren't being charged. Verse 8, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way as the truth of Christ is in me. The boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why not? And why, rather? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. In other words, Paul says, not only am I going to keep preaching free of charge, even though they attack me for it, but I'm going to boast throughout the whole region. Corinth was the the main city in the region of Achaia. Paul says, I'm going to tell everybody what I'm doing. Now, Now, you might say, well, Paul... If you tell everybody that you're not charging the Corinthians, and Corinth was a pretty well-off city, I mean, we would guess if anybody has the ability to pay Paul, it would be the Corinthians. So, Paul, if you're going to make this known throughout all of Achaia, is it because you don't love the Corinthians and you want to humiliate them? Paul says, no. God knows I love them. Well, then why, Paul? Why is it That you're not only not charging them, but you're making it known. And Paul says, because I have another aim. I'm exposing these super apostles. I'm exposing my opponents for the charlatans they are. Look what he says in verse 12. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. In other words, they say they're doing just like I am, that they're willing to sacrifice in the same way I am, but they're not, and I'm making it known. I'm preaching free of charge. Match that, buddy, right? That's what he's saying to them. But then he calls them out, verse 13, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Paul completely exposes them. I can answer your charges, but I'm also going to be aggressive. They claim to be super apostles. They claim to be followers of Christ. You know what they actually are? They are servants of Satan. And they're acting just like their father, the devil. Deceiving you, not for your good, but deceiving you for your ill. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 15, Paul shows his superiority to the super apostles. Second, Paul boasts, but he mainly boasts of his weaknesses. Paul boasts, but he mainly boasts of his weaknesses. Starting in verse 16, Paul then returns. He picks up on this theme that he introduced at the beginning of of chapter 11, saying, let let me get then to this issue of boasting. Boasting. If that's the only thing that'll get your attention, if that's the only thing they're able to do to grab your focus, then, then I'll engage in as well. Although he acknowledges in verse 16, let no one think me foolish. I, I'm boasting, yes, but I'm boasting because I, I, I know it's foolish, but it's simply for your sake. Verse 20, he comes right out and says, You bear it. If someone makes slaves of you, devours you, takes advantage of you, puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. Paul says, These men are abusing you and they're boasting fine. Listen to my boast. And here's where his boasting begins. In verse 21, the second half of verse 21, he says, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking of as a fool. He notes that again and again throughout. This Paul does not think that boasting has a natural place in the life of a Christian. We know that everything we have is a gift from God. He's doing this only because he feels like he has to. He says, I'm speaking of a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. And then it drives him crazy to speak that way. So he says, I'm talking like a madman. Now, it may well be that Paul's opponents attack him even on his pedigree. They may say, we are Hebrews of Hebrews. Hebrews. We are true Jews. And who's Paul? Apostle to the Gentiles? Someone born in Tarsus? So Paul says, fine. They say they're Hebrews. I'm a Hebrew. They say they're in Christ. I am Christ. That they say that they're servants of Christ. I'm a better servant of Christ. But then it's here. It's at this very place in Paul's writing that things start to turn on their head a little bit. Because when you think... Paul has just said, I'm a better servant of Christ, and now he's going to go on to illustrate it, you would think that he's going to boast and show that he's a better servant of Christ in the way that they understand what good service looks like, in a way that would prove to them, I can match everything you say. But when he goes on to illustrate how he's been a good servant of Christ, a better servant than them, he mentions everything every kind of thing that would make the Corinthians cringe. You see, the Corinthians felt this lure of being impressive in the world's sight. This is why, we mentioned back in 1 Corinthians, this is why they always wanted to appeal to the world wise and noble and impressive and flashy. They wanted to be the kind of people who did not get out down into the things that are low and despised, the things that look humiliating, the things that are embarrassing. That's why they were ripe for the pickings for these false apostles. Because when Paul's opponents came along, they contrasted themselves with Paul saying, we're better than him, we're more impressive than him. We walk above the fray. They might be the kind of guys that wander into town in, in three-piece suits, with flashy vehicles, enormous bank accounts, with the mobs gathered around them and praising them. And here comes Paul, tattered and and beaten, shipwrecked and stoned, and he comes walking into town by himself, limping. And they're saying, which one of these do you want to be? Which lifestyle do you want to chase? They had felt that appeal Paul was an embarrassment. And here's Paul about to say, Let me illustrate to you how I've been a better servant of Christ than these men. They want to boast, I'll boast. And then he starts boasting and he mentions everything that makes him low and despised. He starts in verse, the end of verse 23, far greater labors, far more imprisonments countless beatings, often near death. Five times he received 39 lashes. Three times he's beaten with rod. Once he's stoned. Three times he's shipwrecked. He was adrift at sea. He was always in danger. He was in many hardships. He had many sleepless nights. He went hungry. He was hungry and thirsty, often without food. He was in cold and exposure, and daily he felt the pressure of Anxiety for the church is wanting their good. When they were weak, he felt weak. When they were struggling, he was indignant. Now, at this point, again, the Corinthians, I think, would say, Paul, you're just missing it. You you don't understand. You, You don't know how the game is played. When you start to boast, don't boast of those things that make you look weak. Don't you get it? Paul says in verse 30, oh, I get it. And this is very intentional. Verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And if they don't feel embarrassed enough about him, he gives them one more illustration. In verses 31, 32, 33, he says, The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows I'm not lying. I'll tell you a story. Verse 32, at Damascus. The governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. At this point, I imagine the Corinthians would have to have been flabbergasted. My guess is they want to scream at Paul! Paul! Don't you understand this visual of you being lowered? Just imagine Paul. There's a city wall and there's a basket. And people are lowering that basket by a rope outside the city wall. And here's the great Paul sitting in that basket with his knees pulled up to his chest and his arms around his knees like a defeated little weak man being lowered outside the city. Can you imagine the Corinthians being like a teenager who knows their parents aren't cool? And their parents try to do something cool, and the teenager just goes, I think that's here. I think that's here. Paul, don't you get it? Everything about what you're saying makes you look weak and humiliated. But Paul tells them, I'm intentionally boasting of my weakness. I'm intentionally boasting of things that make me look small and foolish and humiliated and embarrassing. Why? That brings us to the third point I want us to see. Paul reveals the secret blessing of our weakness. Paul reveals the secret blessing of our weakness. As I said, it's No secret at all, the text is very open with it, it's secret only in the sense, I say it in the sense that it's not something that we naturally intuit, it's something that's hard to come to terms with. When Paul starts chapter 12, he starts it with the line, I must go on boasting. It looks like he's about to get back to boasting in his strengths, and in fact, he brings out the trump card. Something that happened in his life 14 years earlier that apparently he had kept a secret for 14 years. Apparently, nobody knew about this event in Paul's life for 14 years, and he's about to share it. The event is that he got a glimpse of heaven. But the crazy thing about it is when you read through chapter 12, verses 1 through 13, you find out that Paul's bringing up this greatest trump card of boasting. Simply because he's establishing a context to talk about something else. Something else that's even more dear to him. Something else that's even more, in his mind, worth boasting about. A thorn in the flesh. Now let's start where Paul starts. Chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I must go on boasting. There's nothing to be gained by it. I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was called up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was called up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses." Though if I should boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Now, the first thing that's confusing about this text is it sounds like, it reads like Paul is boasting about an experience that someone else had. Right? Verse 2 I know a man. Uh, Verse 3, and I know that this man, verse 5, on on behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, I only boast of my weakness. It sounds like Paul is actually telling about the experience that someone else had, but he's not. He's talking about an experience that he had. And the reason we know that is because when you get to verse 7 and Paul talks about the surpassing greatness of this revelation of heaven, Paul says in verse 7, so to keep me, Paul, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to ask me to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul says, in order that I might not become conceited because of this glorious revelation of heaven that I was given, a thorn was given me to eat the flesh. In other words, Paul makes very clear by the time you get to verse seven, he's talking about something he experienced. Why? Why talk about it in the third person? Perhaps we can't know for sure. I think the most likely reason is because it allows Paul, who feels utterly embarrassed, and like a madman, utterly foolish, completely out of place, to talk about things that show how impressive he is, wants to distance himself from his own story. It's as if even when he goes to boast, he can't do it. And so by telling the story in third person, as if it's the experience of somebody else, it distances himself in a, a little bit. This is the opposite of the temptation we might have in high school. When somebody else does something really cool and you tell the story to other friends, and all of a sudden you're the one doing it, right? Paul goes the other way. It happened to him, but he wants to distance himself. And what happened to him was he got a vision. Now, now whether he was in the body, whether he was bodily transported or just given a vision or transported out of his body, just, just in, in the spirit, transported there, whether he was in the body with given a vision or transported out of his body, and the spirit actually went to heaven, we don't know. But Paul says he went to heaven. He got a vision of heaven. When, when the text says the third heaven, that's the way to refer to heaven, the, the real heaven, what we think of as the abode of God. We can look at the sky and call the sky and space the heavens, but the third heaven is a way to refer to the highest heaven. Paul actually had a vision of heaven. He got to see heaven. Now, can you imagine when Paul says this? This is the trump card. He wins. I mean, if they're going to boast about things they've done, maybe they're going to boast of their travels, right? They're all together. Remember, we used to go around, and we would speak and charge elaborate fees, and we went to England, we went to Spain, right? We went to, went to Rome that one time, and, and the Colosseum was full of people, people hearing us, and you could imagine Paul sitting over there going, yeah, 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 Spain's beautiful, much like heaven is beautiful. <laughs> Did I tell you, I went to heaven, you know? It's like Spain, only infinitely better, right? Paul has the trump card here. He can play it. He wins. And yet, this is the crazy thing. The only reason he's mentioning this that could be his trump card is because he wants to talk about something else. It says in verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations he had seen heaven, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan sent to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. A thorn in the flesh. It's a metaphor. It wasn't literally Paul had a thorn in his flesh, we don't think. It's a, it's a metaphor. We don't know what it is. It's perhaps not worth speculating about. But it is worth us thinking through why he chooses this metaphor, Years ago, I think it was uh, about 13 years ago, uh, when I was up in Louisville, the church had given us, I uh, moved my, at the time, my, my wife, and, and we had three kids at the time. We moved to Louisville for two years, and, and I was working there on my studies. And uh, Aaron gives me a hard time about this. He was there at the same time. I, I rarely went to chapel. Not, not because I wasn't committed. I just had two years and had to work, and I talked them into letting me stay in the library. But there's one time that Ray Ortland was giving a conference on preaching. And I managed to get away and hear one of those lectures. And when I got away to hear one of those lectures, Ray Ortland made reference to 1 Corinthians 12, or 2 Corinthians 12, I'm sorry. And he mentioned this thorn in the flesh. And I just thought the way he put it was so well done. He said, "Just, just imagine, Paul has gotten this vision of heaven. And then all of a sudden, he comes back to himself. Whether he was transported out of his body to heaven or just given a vision while in the body, we don't know, God knows. But he had gotten this vision of heaven, and having gotten that vision, you can imagine that Paul thought, this is the most remarkable moment of my life. Everything in my life now is going to be different. I'm going to walk around as the guy who got to see heaven. And you can imagine him then if he's just, after this, just walking along, excited, ready to go, lights transformed, when all of a sudden, with all of these glorious thoughts in his head, things he heard that can't even be uttered, they're so glorious, Paul stumbles. And as he stumbles, he reaches down to catch himself with his hand. And as his hand hits the ground, a massive splinter drives deep, pierces right into him. And all of a sudden, every glorious and majestic thought Paul had one second earlier is completely gone from his mind. And all he can think about is this piercing pain that he now feels. And what's worse is it's driven so deeply, he can't get it out. And it's throbbing. And minutes pass, and hours pass, and all of a sudden he realizes, this thing is going to be with me forever. I'm never going to know again what life is like without this piercing thorn in my flesh. Every day when he goes to sleep, he goes to sleep with the thorn. Every morning when he wakes up, he wakes up to the thorn. We we don't know what it is, but I think we can know that it is something painful that entered Paul's life and didn't leave. Again, something that came into Paul's life that was so bothersome and so constant that he could probably think of his life before that thing and after that thing and know the life he once knew he would never know again. A thorn in his flesh. He calls it a messenger of Satan, which may simply be a reference to the fact that it was painful. Satan being evil would indeed delight in our pain. It may be more than that it may be that Satan used this thorn as an opportunity to attack Paul. Maybe Satan's constant voice to Paul was, you deserve that. let that be a reminder to you that God is not for you. Let that be a reminder to you that you're not his treasured child. Let it be a reminder to you that you've not done enough to deserve good things in your life. We know that his... Title, the enemy's title, is the accuser. So Paul can say it's a messenger of Satan, and yet he also sees God's intention in it, doesn't he? We know that because when he talks about it, even though he references it as a messenger of Satan, he says in verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited. And he ends verse 7. A messenger of Satan sent to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. I promise you this, Satan has no problem with you becoming conceited. He wants it. He would love for all of us to be given over to pride. This is not his design. This is the design of God. So Paul sees in this thorn, this messenger of Satan harassing him, he sees God's divine intention. I got to see heaven. that that, that could, that could elevate Paul to the sense of great conceit and pride. And Paul says, but to keep that from happening... God gave me a thorn in the flesh to keep me from being conceited. He saw God's intention, and yet he wanted it gone. Paul says in verse 8, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. When the text says three times Paul pleaded, pleaded with the Lord, it may mean literally, on three different occasions, Paul prayed that God would take it from him. It could mean more than that. It could be like third heaven. If third heaven represents the highest of heaven, by saying three times I pleaded, Paul may be saying something like, I pleaded to the point of exhaustion. Paul wrestled with the Lord. He begged the Lord. He pleaded with the Lord. Take this away. No doubt in Paul's mind, there were two options. This makes complete sense. Option one God, you leave this thorn, and my ministry is going to be crippled. What I want to do, what I can do, what I can be used for is this, but if you leave the thorn, it's only going to be this. I could be a 10, that's is going to lower me below a 5. Option 1, or option 2. God, you take away the thorn, and I can be really, really useful You get the thorn out of my life, and man, nothing will hold me back. And the Lord says to Paul, there's a third option. How about I leave the thorn, and I give you sufficient grace to live and minister with the continuing presence of the thorn, but, and this is a bonus, I'm going to demonstrate my power through your weakness. Paul, the option one where you minister in power, I'm going to do so much more than that. You were thinking you're going to administer the power in your own strength. No, 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 no. I'm going to give you a thorn that shows that you're weak, but through your weakness, I'm going to work powerfully. And that weakness will be the very vehicle, the very channel through which I show my strength. I don't know whether Paul knew that that's how God could work until that moment, but he knew it then. And all of a sudden, Paul got a glimpse then of how God can work through our weaknesses, to demonstrate his power, and it changed his life. We know it changed his life because listen to verses 9 and 10. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, this is the man who pleaded with the Lord to the point of exhaustion, perhaps. God, please take away my weakness. And now he says, therefore, I will all the more gladly boast I will will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. Maybe even meaning he finds delight. I am content. And notice how he expands what he means by weaknesses here. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak then I am strong. Brothers and sisters, it may well be that the very thing in your life that you most despise, the very thing in your life that has proved such a hardship that you mark your life before that and after that. The very thing in your life that you have pleaded with God maybe to the point of exhaustion. Please, please, if you love me, take it away. Change my life. It may be in that very thing that you most despise that God is saying, that's my vehicle to show my power. Because God doesn't, contrary to the way we think, God doesn't say, I need your strength. He says, I need you to feel weak. For it is in your weakness that my power is demonstrated. And it may be that there is no other way for God to show his power in your life to a degree that you've never experienced except that you have this thorn, except that you know this weakness. But if that's the case, brothers and sisters, I promise you, his grace will be sufficient. He gives you and me himself. And this, though it I think can be surprising to us, shouldn't be surprising to us. Because think of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He can pray, Father, glorify your Son with the glory that I had with you before the world. And the very next thing God does is lead him to the obedient point of death, even death on a cross. Weakness. He was so weak that he was nailed to a tree forced to drown and suffocate in his own blood. But that was a weakness through which God, God the Son, demonstrated his glory. And therefore God raised him from the dead. Paul ends our text in verses 11 through 13 saying, I shouldn't have had to do this. He should have been able to kept his heavenly vision as a secret. He had kept it secret for 14 years. That happened before Paul wrote any letter we have in the New Testament. And Paul kept it secret. At the end of our text, Paul says, I shouldn't have had to do this. I've played the fool and you forced me to do it. But I tell you this morning, as a reader of 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, I thank God that he did. I thank God that Paul wrote these words because I know in my own life I need this reminder that it is in our weakness that God is not abandoning us. It is when we have weakness that it is not God putting us in a place of contempt. It is in our weakness that God is saying I'm committed to you. I'm present with you. And I want to show my power through you, but there is no other way except that you're weak. And so this morning, as we consider our own weakness, let it be a reminder to us not that we are distant from God, but that we are loved by him, that he is determined to use us, and that he will give us grace so that we will know him in a way we could not have known him otherwise. And how can we know that we can trust him even in our weakness? Because when we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This meal is a reminder to us, when we are weak, God is with us, showing his strength. And so this morning, my prayer for us, as we ready ourselves to come to the table, is that we might understand what Paul is saying And we might find our hearts resonating with his words. May God give us the grace to align ourselves with this beautiful and glorious vision that we have here. Now, the way we're going to end the service is the way we do every week. One, I want to say, if you're not a believer, then the place that you must begin right now, the scripture says, by your unrepentant heart, you're storing up for yourself wrath on the day of judgment. As if you're walking around with a big basket on your head, just just pouring wrath into that basket, waiting for the day God will crush you under His wrath. But there's good news. The good news is that God sent His Son to bear the penalty to receive the wrath that we deserve. He raised him from the dead on the third day so that if anyone repents of their sins and places their faith in Jesus Christ, they can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. If you're not a believer this morning, I'm going to plead with you to place your faith in Christ. If you'd like to talk to your neighbor or me after the service, we would love to talk to you. If you are a believer, you have professed faith in baptism, you're in good standing at the gospel preaching church, then I want to invite you to come to the table. The way we're going to come to the table this morning is this way. We're going to take a moment of silence that's a, a time when you can perhaps spend the time praying. It has just a real practical benefit for us. It allows the mi- musicians to come get in place. In that moment of silence, we're going to sit and prepare ourselves to come to the table. And then, we're going to come row by row. Just the first row, come. Exit to the outside, come around, and get a serving. The serving out of the tray will be two cups stacked together. The top one has bread. Uh, top one has juice. The bottom one has bread. You can take two cups, one stack of two cups, enter back to your row to the inside, and then we'll eat and we'll drink together. If you're to my left over here, you can start with the first row as well, but you'll just go back over here to my left, and Nathan will be there serving uh, communion there as well. If you're uh, in the back, if you're in the balcony, you can come to my left. If you're in the back, just try to gauge which line is longer and go to the other one, and then we'll come together. And as we do it, we'll be singing, Jesus, I, my cross have taken. A reminder that the Lord Jesus Christ did not pull a bait and switch on us, did he? When he called us to follow him, he said, take up your cross, an instrument of death, and follow me. And so let's take a moment of silence as we prepare ourselves to come to the table.